Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Start Ed Up podcast. Excited today because we have on the co-authors of The Moonshot Effect, Kate Permel and Lisa Goldman. And it's interesting because one of the things we get is, is like, hey, have, have on some more female entrepreneurs, more female leadership on your show. And I have got two gems for you today. I don't want to spoil it on giving away where they started, but they, they have worked for some of the who's who in the tech and entrepreneurial world. So I won't spoil that for those ladies. But the, this is also one of the show that it spilled over after the show. We got into such great conversations that after we pressed record, it's honestly started a, a new relationship. And I, and I say that lovingly because these ladies are already busy, um, but we they have this deep felt interest in, in education as well. So not only was this book and this interview good for people that are interested in moonshots and entrepreneurialism, but also those who are in school. And so some of this interview was, without a doubt, through the lens of being a parent and a teacher. Um, but this this interview also is great for just people, again, wanting to learn how to get out of that comfort zone and like set their sights on truly transformative um, ventures. So it's for those reasons that I'm really, really, really proud of this podcast. If you would like, uh, I would strongly recommend you check out their book, The Moonshot Effect, Disrupting Business as Usual. It's on Kindle. It's on Amazon. It's wherever. Um, but it's, it's, it's an important book, and, and, uh, and, and by this interview, I think you'll see why. So without further ado, authors Kate Permel and Lisa Goldman. All right, joining me now is Lisa Goldman and Kate Permel. They are the authors of The Moonshot Effect. Ladies, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Well, Thanks for all, having us. Oh, man, I'm excited. Um, one of the things that just makes me super excited is that, uh, let's state the obvious, you guys are, are female, and there's been a lot of talk on innovation, and I don't think that there's enough voice on innovation from from your side. And so uh, I, I appreciate that, especially as a guy that has two daughters. Uh, so that was the first thing that jumped off of me. Um, but, but I want to start from the very beginning. When did you guys, you know, the origin, like, hey, let's write a book and why? <laughs> yeah, we, we met uh, in one of our favorite locations prepping for a board meeting, which is this uh, eclectic uh, coffee shop in Woodside called uh, Bucks. And on the way there, we were listening to a um, retro of the Apollo 11 mission. And both of us, and we're Lisa in particular, but we're both very, very punctual. And I get this text from Lisa, you know, two minutes before we're supposed to be in the restaurant, who's saying, I, I'm running a couple minutes late. And I thought, oh, this is great, because I was completely engrossed in this, in this radio program about the Apollo 11. It was on NPR. And, um, and so we... It turns out we both got out of our cars and <laughs> looked up and saw each other and walked in at the same time because we were both listening to the same program, which is why she was running late. And what we then did is sat down and talked about how so many of the projects and initiatives we've worked on throughout our career were moonshots. You know, Lisa worked for Apple with Steve Jobs. I worked with Jeff Hawkins at Palm um, and then numerous other, other um, engagements like that. So we started to talk about how and why they were so significant and that inspired us to think about writing the book. You just threw out some huge names there. <laughs> so, uh, walk, yeah, give, give me some background then. I, I'm, I'm blown away. So, um, so Don, I, 
was the fifth employee at Palm. Uh, and it was called Palm Computing back then. And I had come um, into the technology industry, actually was a um, chemistry major and got a job programming after one programming class at a computer graphics company and then uh, uh, ended up just moving into software and uh, landing at Palm, which was an opportunity to work with a real visionary and innovator, Jeff Hawkins. It was quite extraordinary time. Um, and what we developed was the Palm Pilot. I ran product marketing there. And um, that whole experience uh, was yeah. probably the third time in my career when I had worked with a visionary. And it was so inspiring to uh, watch how visionaries operate and lead companies and, and create innovative solutions. Wow. <laughs> so how... You Man, I'm sure that could be a whole podcast of like, how did you land yourself there? And, and then the learning curve of when you got there. Um, but I'm assuming, though, that that how you adapted when you got there is a huge insights into the book, correct? Yeah, we I mean, really, when you establish a moonshot and by moonshot, what we define as a moonshot is a um, barely achievable <laughs> outcome that is will require numerous breakthroughs and will not permit teams to operate in business as usual, meaning they've got to do things differently than they've done before in order to make this happen. Um, so really moving into that kind of an environment with Jeff as the visionary leader was uh, a completely new experience. And I'll tell a little story that's really uh, illustrative of what visionaries do and what Jeff did, which is uh, we were a software company building software for Casio and Sharp originally. And he was trying to get them to build a pen-based device. And they, they really uh, didn't want to do that. That was too far out on the limb. So one day he called us all together after the weekend. It was a Monday. And he brought in, he said, I, I decided what we're going to do. Here we were, a software company. He pulls out of his pocket this balsa wood model that he's carved over the weekend of the Palm Pilot. And it all, I can send you the image. It's exactly the same as the Palm Pilot design uh, for the original Palm Pilot. Wow. And he said, we're gonna build this. And he'd even taken a chopstick and whittled it down so it would fit in the little slot where the, the, the stylus goes. And so, the, but the amazing part about that was that he continued to bring that, carry that with him everywhere and use it as if it worked because he wanted to understand what the experience would be like and he wanted to use it as a tool for to help understand how to develop the software so that it was intuitive and he started counting how many clicks it took to get to a calendar or to a to a um a note page or whatever um so this is stuff we take for granted down with our iphones all of that's been worked out but this is what jeff did in order moment was one day when uh, the engineering team came back and said, you know, we, this digitizer, which is what you write on to capture data so that the screen could turn text into data, right? That's, that's the, on top of the screen. Uh, they had not been able to figure out how to put a digitizer in that small device without a tether, which is an electronic piece between the pen. It means the pen then is activated. And uh, they came to Jeff and they said, look, we've, we've tried everything. We don't, this, the form factor is not big enough. The batteries are too big, blah, blah, blah. And he, and he just pulled the, the balsa wood model out of his pocket. He held it up. He pulled out the pen. He said, does this have a tether? And he said, no. And he's like, 
Well, then go back and figure out how to make this without a tether. We've got to get the right digitizer. So he had, by virtue of using this balsa wood model, it was so real to him that, and the rest of us, frankly, that uh, we all were very, very clear on what we were building and how critical it was to have no tether, for example, for this device. Wow. I I want to touch on that later because having that singular focus, you can always kind of excuse things away and say, well, like, it is our first prototype, who cares? And I think that's the default for a lot of people. For him to have that singular focus on the first balsa wood prototype is seriously mind-blowing. I I seriously want to get back to that in a second. Lisa, kind of the same thing. Uh, Your origin, you know, some of your, uh, like, feel free to flex and name drop, but you guys are both so like seriously. I feel flattered that that you're on the show. Like, you guys have found uh, unique niches, and and so as you guys expand on expound on some of these ideas, yeah, give us some where you've been uh, street cred from the beginning. Yeah. So, um, and can you hear me? I'm assuming. Absolutely. Okay, great. I solved the the problem with my headset, so I'm back on my computer's mic. Um, the the uh, I, I want to answer your question by highlighting something in uh, it sort of double-clicking on, on what Kate said. So in addition to that singular focus uh, element that you were talking about, Don, the, the thing that most people don't notice and I think is transparent for people who are very innovative when they're participating in something innovative or watching innovation is innovation occurs as a phenomenon in the future. So people walk and talk as if that balsa wood thing worked, like it's the future. The future is here. And it, it's, it's you know, some people call it vision, but it really is walking, talking, living and breathing as if the future is already here. And many people find that they can't get out of their own way, they can't divest themselves of we've always done it this way, or the past informs us, or our history. And so uh, the people that I have worked with that have, I think, embodied this are certainly Steve Jobs. I was at Apple for about five years working uh, on many of the most innovative products, uh, including the Macintosh, when it was called the Macintosh, uh, and uh, released in 1984. Steve was then famously um, asked to leave Apple and started a new company called Next. And I went there to work with him as well for a couple of years. And I can tell you every single day was only talking about the future and the near future. And Uh, that kind of intolerance for the present not matching the future. Uh, And that really gave me an appetite for um, seeking that out and wanting to make that happen in the world. Uh, That's part of the genesis of this book as well, is Kate and I have looked at what are the many projects that we have worked on and how can we codify them so people can demystify and uh, replicate them in their own lives. So I'm going to give you um, a story about replicating this in a way that I think is more um, available to people like 
students and teachers and you and I, and, uh, you know, I, I count myself as the, the average person. Um, I work with a, uh, a man who's a CEO of a management consulting firm in Japan, uh, and his name is Zen. That is his first name. And he was looking for a way to have about 50 consultants who are loosely connected, to be more connected. I don't know where he got the idea, but he dreamed up, let's all participate in a triathlon. And uh, because he kind of threw down the gauntlet, I think people felt embarrassed if they didn't say, yes, yes, we're all in. I have to tell you, some of those people had never swum in their life. They didn't know how to swim. Uh, some of them didn't own a bike, let alone ride very often. And a year later, he had 24 people cross the finish line uh, of a triathlon. Nine of them now currently participate in Ironman triathlons. And they had uh, their clients participating with them. Their families came to far-flung international locations to cheer them on. Uh, one man who participated told me, this is a Japanese man, told me that his father told him after he crossed the finish line of his first triathlon that he was so proud of him. And he cried telling me this because his father had never said anything like that to him before. So um, innovation has a way of creeping into all of our lives if we can see the opportunity for it. I want to scream that from the mountaintop again. I, I, I think you guys know this. I'm a, well, I, I was a 21 year educator. I'm actually just stepping away to expand this further. I run this nonprofit started up foundation, but I agree. Like we, we have two camps that we're trying to create seekers and peakers, not moaners and groaners, because I see a problem as the vast majority of teens that we talk to um, at first, they want to moan and groan. And I get it. The, the world's not perfect. There's some things that they don't like. They, they want to see change. But the seekers and peakers is where it's at. And it starts off with that mindset, that mindset of seeking opportunities. They're abundant. There are tons of them. And once you start doing that, then you create this, your own small group. And then you become peakers because you get a bunch of students that can see opportunities. They can peek around the corner then. They know what's coming next. And, I, and I'm so glad that you a shared that story and started off with the fact that even you you know you threw in the students in there as well, because if the mindset's not there first, then it's it's never never going to happen. And and that's something I really appreciated about your book is, is that you guys started off really with that mindset um, that before you have the, the your your moonshot uh, in general, you have to have the right mindset and attitude. So I have to, well, you're sorry, you're about ready to say something. Yeah, I was wondering if I could share one other brief story that I think is really relevant to your audience. Um, so the vision is what, having a vision of the future is really what differentiates visionaries from non-visionaries. There are three things. So the first is that they have this vision of the future, but the vision's real to them. They're already at the after party. So the analogy is if you're going to climb Mount Everest, if you're not a visionary, you're just thinking about the climb and the route up there and how you're going to get there and what you're going to do. If you're a visionary, you're standing on top of Mount Everest months and months in advance looking at the view and celebrating the fact that you made it there. That's how visionaries work. They have a visceral experience of the future with all of their senses. I mean, they're dreamers, right? They land in the future and they test drive around and see what it's like to be there. And that makes them, the second thing, intolerant of the present, 
because they've already been in the future. It's way better than the present. So they want to be there faster. And the third thing is, is it trivializes the challenges along the way because they know they've made it. I mean, their body and their system, because they've had this like experience in their mind that's so rich and real is enables them to um, trivialize some of the challenges they're going to have. So they're not beset by fear and doubt like most of us are. And they also are willing to take greater risks as a result. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes you need to hear things on the right day. So full disclosure, and I don't know if I'll keep this in the podcast or not. Today is day one of me not being in the classroom. I literally had to step away. And I am in that and, and there's going to be a question here, I promise you, uh, the, 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 I have a team. And thank God I have non-visionaries on my team because they're like, okay, Don, step one is the foundation we've started. And step three is the success and students get to, you know, get provided with X, Y, and Z. Okay. Step two is, and, and when you said they trivialize it, uh, that's the only thing that like I'm driving them nuts at times because I have this big vision and I already see, and I know the, like the, 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 the need, but my question is how then important is it to surround yourself with a team of, I don't want to say naysayers, but like non-visionaries. It's critical. It's absolutely critical that you have people who know how to dot the I's and cross the T's. People are planners, people who are uh, they think about mitigating risks. You absolutely need people like that on the team if you're a visionary, uh, because otherwise, uh, you know, your your visionaries have zero interest usually in the mundane aspects of the <laughs> details of getting there. Right? Yeah, they just want it to. Happen. And I'd like to add, uh, Don. I'm glad you clarified what day one was because I was looking at your Instagram account and I couldn't go back far enough to figure out what what that meant. So thank you for clarifying that. Um, that you know, I have worked with probably more than three hundred CEOs of companies. Uh, many of them billion-dollar companies. Uh, many of them startups that then uh, went public. Uh, I've worked with the CEOs of companies that have been the number one funded company in the entire year in the United States. So really hot, hot, hot companies. I can tell you that almost everyone I've met with, I give them the same piece of advice and I'm actually going to give this to you. So it's interesting that we're doing this sort of real time. What's important is that you have people who work for you who can make the dream real. And what's also important is that you have some body of, I'm going to call it a board, for lack of a better word, small b board. You could call it an advisory board in your case. A board who are going to be your committed listeners in building what you're building that you consider to be peers but the kinds of peers that you can't shine on, the kinds of peers who, when you make commitments, they hold you to them, the kinds of peers who ask you the questions that you can't see for yourself in your business. They can see your backhand. The kinds of peers who may have ten, either this experience that's relevant or, or important tangential experience to what you're building and who will um, be your as a body, your partner in crossing the finish line. 
nobody gets to the Olympics without a coach. And uh, one of the things that I strongly recommend to people is the pull of gravity is to work with your advisors one-on-one. I'll call George, I'll call Jane, I'll call Robert is an expert in uh, supply chain management, and I have a question in that area, so I'll call him. My strong recommendation is that you meet with people as a group because they will support you as a collective entity much more powerfully than each of them can individually. Wow. I I think in a lot of ways, and, and kind of circling back to the book, that's one of the, was I think part three, you guys are talking about, you know, cultivating that high-performing team and, and, and all the pieces that have to go in it. Uh, and, and again, I'm not trying to circle this back too much to our students, but that is something that I've seen too often is that um, it was just in the, the social media news. There was a girl who was, a, a, I'm using my air quotes, an influencer. She had, you know, 40, 50,000 followers, and she couldn't sell 20 T-shirts. And yeah. there, there was a lot of like tee hee ha ha, but it, it kind of uh, posed a, an interesting problem. She may be that visionary, but she doesn't have somebody in sales or in marketing or in or in or in. And I think that that importance of building a team is lost, um, as opposed to a lot of fans and yes people. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I hit, think you hit the nail on the head. Um, it. And really great entrepreneurs understand that each of those facets have to be filled to make the whole. What's funny, (laughs) we're now going in progression of the book, which is part four. You're right. Like cultivating those entrepreneurs. um, And and, and not that this is a book for high school students. It's clearly not. uh, It's for a a much broader audience, which again, I really like the book. By the way, whoever did your cover looks amazing. Um, (laughs) But but it is, it's like you guys have a nice succession here on from from vague moonshot idea on down the line of making it accomplishable, which I appreciate because there's a lot of, if you just believe kind of mantras and books out there, uh, I appreciated some of the the step by step approach to this book, and and obviously, your track record and your histories uh, give you guys a ton of credibility. But but if I were a let's just say a parent uh, listening to this uh, of a high school student, um, what is maybe the biggest uh, mistake you see that? high school, and I'm, I'm saying this nicely, that high school wannabe entrepreneur, that high school, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to make a moonshot. What is that first big mistake that they usually make? You know, Don, I, I think that um, the, you know, there's this combination of having a vision and doing the work, doing the hard work and being self-reflective enough to know what you're good at and what you're not good at. Um, I have worked with young entrepreneurs who have tremendous visions and they, uh, as Lisa was saying, you know, this, this notion of surrounding yourself with a team who can support you is critical. And this doesn't mean a team of your friends, usually. This often means a team of people who have been there and done that and are willing to devote some time to, in support of your success, who are going to tell you the hard hard things you need to hear and ensure that you get the training you need. 
Um, one of the most inspiring uh, moments um, I've, after researching visionaries and uh, working with young people to cultivate vision, um, one of the most inspiring moments for me was a young woman who was uh, in marketing for a small company. And she, I think she was in product marketing. And uh, during a vision session that I um, held, she envisioned becoming a software engineer. And she was in marketing and she had graduated from college with a degree in communications. And she's like, oh my gosh, what I really want to be as a software engineer, what the heck did I do? How did I make it out of college without the right degree? So she went and started talking to software engineers to figure out how they got where they got and how did they do it. And they all encouraged her to go to HackerU. And so, and they, and they told her that they'd be in support of her as she was going through those programs and they focused her on the right direction of what areas to focus in in order to get where she needed to go. And within six months, she graduated from HackerU and was given a, or was offered a job at Google as a software engineer. And so much of that had to do with the preparation she did or the early uh, work she did with those who were already experts in the field. So it's not enough to be, as you're saying, to have an audience. You have to look at what people with audiences who are effective at selling products do and do your best to replicate what they do and to get them to advise you. Yeah. And I, I, uh, you know, one of the things I sometimes think if we're talking to parents now, that was your question, um, is that it's very, very important to be kind and not very important to be nice. And in fact, kind, kindness is often, niceness is often the saboteur of kindness. Um, it, it, and I think in the working world, that's the, the flip of the currency that, uh, high school kids will be called upon to tolerate and build muscles in receiving input that is kind to them, meaning empowers them further to be better. And if everyone was nice, they would fail if everyone was nice to them. So that's one thing is to start listening, understanding that what people are saying is kind to your future and part of your future. That's, that's one thing. The other is, um, you know, when I worked at Apple, I was employee number, f- <laughs> this is kind of a, a sickness of early Apple employees. We all remember, remember our um, badge number, which was our, you know, rank of employee hire. So mine was 5,214. I think there are over 100,000 now. Um, and it it could be easy to say that there was one visionary, Steve Jobs, and one um, you know, one entrepreneur, and that was Steve Jobs, and one innovator, and that was Steve Jobs. And that was absolutely not true. There were 5,000 people like that. Everyone can be creative and innovative in, in their sphere. And one of the ways to learn how to do that is to learn how to be a follower. And I actually, two weeks ago, I spoke to a high school class And that's what I said to them. Uh, Learn how to be a a good follower 
because good followers follow good leaders and that will allow you to see what good leaders do. Yeah. So I that's guess. what I would say to parents. No, I, I like that. And, and, and in addition to that, you know, learn how to find good leaders. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, yeah, not necessarily a Pied Piper, but also learn how to find good leaders. Um, and and the, the other thing you kind of mentioned on is, is the empathy piece and, and nice versus kind. Uh, I really like that because, um, I, I, at times, I think that we, especially youngsters, there is now a, a fear of call-out culture that if you're always not being nice, then that is seemed as bad, but kind. And, and of course, there's also a difference between being brutally honest and being like an asshole versus, you know, kind. Like, I'm telling you what you need to hear, you may not like it. I think that's kind of an interesting paradox that they're kind of sifting through now is like giving someone constructive criticism may be you know, triggering or they don't like it, but it's just being told yes isn't exactly kind either. Yeah, um, and there's a, there's a lot of gray between those two poles. There's also oh, a good way to do it, I think, Don, which is something we don't learn as youngsters or even most of us in the work world, which is when you're being nice, you're often diluting the truth, right? You're not telling the full truth about what you see and you're trying to make it nicer. Um, when you're being kind, you can genuinely tell the truth on both sides, which is to say, you know, uh, on the one hand, you are amazing. You've got this um, unbelievable group of followers. They, uh, it's so amazing how quickly you've developed that. This is a huge asset. And that's, it's critical to know that you are in a position that is amazing to do something next. On the other hand, you don't have any experience doing this now. So it's critically important that you go out and you get the support you need to develop the experience you need to make this successful. So this one hand, other hand allows you to be fully truthful with positive and fully truthful with constructive input. And it's just a really effective tool for telling the truth. No, I, yeah, I, I, and Kate, did, Kate did something that I, that I also want to um, uh, pull out from the background because it's so important. Um, feedback is a very, it's, it's a, um, deceptively, uh, bad word. And I, I, we have made up a new word feed forward. So Kate said, since you're, since you're headed this way, or since you want to do this, that's a great way to speak to people. I know you're committed to X. I know you want to produce X. I know you want to get to college. I know you, whatever that is in the future. And you may not have the current experience to do that. You may not have this. You may be doing this that gets in your way. You may be whatever, whatever those things are. Then you're resonating against their commitment to the future rather than just complaining or tattling or whatever else. Or just being a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's such an important component because, uh, again, like <laughs> – I, I think personally think that a lot of kids right now are awesome. They're more aware, they're more passionate, but there is that what we're talking about of like still having a little bit thicker skin of getting some of the feedback that you need as opposed to like, you know, everybody's awesome. And if you say otherwise, then you're somehow against me or, or you don't like me kind of thing. So that's a really, really important component. Um, can, I, can I just say one quick yeah, thing on that, Don, yeah. which is uh, when 
when ideas are new, they're fragile. They're like little seedlings. Mm. Um, so when your vision is, when you first develop a vision, it's very fragile. It hasn't yet taken form. You haven't thought through everything. Um, you're not, maybe not completely committed to it yet. So I also believe it's important to uh, time your openness to feedback appropriately. The woman who developed Spanx, Spanx um, Sarah, what's her last name? Blakely. Blakely, yes, Sarah Blakely. She uh, kept her idea completely secret for a year. Didn't tell anybody what she was doing other than the people she needed to tell to support the development of the idea. So she told her lawyer, she told her accountant, she told the uh, manufacturers that she was getting to build prototypes, but she didn't tell anybody in her family, none of her friends. This was a secret project. And the reason was she knew that if she told them, they, they could potentially squash her um, her vital force of doing this because it was so fragile and then when she did tell them they said things like you know uh other another company is just going to come and build this you're going to develop it and they're going to come take over or you're not really going to use that last five thousand dollars in your savings account to do that are you and it's all out of love and compassion care but it's something that by that time she had enough uh momentum and strength under her her feet to be able to move forward that was an amazing wow i I needed to this has almost been therapy for me uh i'm in the the midst of this and we're wrestling with a lot of things and then unfortunately we now have some extra i shouldn't say unfortunately we've got some extra cooks in the kitchen right now that are examining and, and 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 some things are in their infancy but i i'm one of those weirds that i actually like wrestling and i like getting feedback and all that good stuff but that is so true on that that at the beginning in the infancy, it's fragile. In some cases you need to be narrow focused and just believe it's going back to what we were talking about the visionary. Uh, so I, I love that. Well, I, I want to thank you um, for those listening, the moonshot effect disrupting business as usual, uh, whether you're a parent, young entrepreneur, old entrepreneur, <laughs> uh, this is a fantastic book. Um, I know we just scratched the surface on it, but um, j- coupled with their insights in their past, this is one of the reasons why. But then I, I sincerely want to thank you for, A, knowing you're going to get into a podcast that, you know, the primary audience is the future of, of you know, teachers, parents, and, and young entrepreneurs. Um, but your, your commitment to the moonshot effect thinking, the, the entrepreneurial, the innovative thinking is so apparent in this book uh, that I, I highly... Uh, not only encourage it, but I, I sincerely want to thank you for being on the show. Um, I do have to ask, re, other than the book, which you can find on Amazon and other places, where where would be a good place for us to find you guys, uh, social media outlets, things of that nature? <laughs> Don, you know, uh, we're not, neither one of us spend a lot of time on social media. Uh, so uh, right now, that's about it. It's the book and, and, uh, and we're available on LinkedIn. So uh, Kate Perlman and Lisa Goldman are both available on LinkedIn and we welcome connections there, but we do mostly one-on-one. No, that's that's fine. Uh, And and to be honest with you, that's been where we've been transitioning is LinkedIn. So, because I can tell you, I I think there's some people that might have some burning questions or just want to give you guys kudos. And and so, yeah, you can find them on LinkedIn. All right. um, Any last words of wisdom before we wrap this up? I'll let you go first, Lisa. 
Uh, thank you for saying what you said about the book. Uh, as I said, I had spoken to a high school class a couple of weeks ago and I gave some copies of the book. One of those high school students sent me an email just yesterday saying that the tools that we listed in the book were so practical that she was using them in uh, she had just become the head of a club at school and she was using those tools immediately and ha and having much success. So I, one of the things that I am committed to is the practicality of enacting things. And uh, I am delighted that this book <clears throat> can speak to that kind of practice in people and um, I think every um, every relationship that we have in the world uh, is fodder for being both a leader and a follower and improving. So that's good. Good luck to everyone in those categories. Kate. Yeah, I uh, want to, when, when uh, I speak, uh, there's something I ask everybody to write down. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave your audience with that. Um, and it's alluding back to something we talked about with visionaries. Um, you don't get what you deserve. You get what you tolerate. And visionaries, because they've experienced the future, no longer tolerate the presence. And that is how they're pulled into the future and how they take great risks and do great things. So if there's one thing that I encourage people to do, it's to spend time dreaming about the future and dream about the after party of whatever you're trying to achieve. Go in and imagine yourself in a place where you're celebrating and smell the smells and look out of your closed eyes and see the vision and feel what it feels like, the air feels like, and notice what you're wearing and notice who's around you and just get a full experience of the future because that will that will pull you into something like you're remembering something that's already happened. And that's really the secret to having the experiences you want in your life. Uh, that is a perfect way to end. The book is The Moonshot Effect. Lisa Goldman, Kate Permel, thank you so much for being on. Thank you.